We are continuing in our series through Exodus, and our passage for today introduces us to the story of Moses, uh, the story of Moses. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Uh, It's going to go up on the screen, and I'll be reading from the ESV. May God bless the reading of his sufficient and inerrant word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dobed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked besides the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. The word of the Lord. As the ruler of ancient Egypt, Pharaoh was one of the most powerful men in the world. And he began to see the Hebrews as a threat. And so he turned his nation against them. Pharaoh forgot how Joseph had saved Egypt from the seven-year famine. He ignored the gratitude of the former Pharaoh and all of the blessings, all of the rewards that Pharaoh had issued for Joseph and his people and the Hebrews. And in an effort to stop Israel's growth, this new Pharaoh decided to enslave them to oppress God's people, but God was ever with his people and he blessed the Hebrews. He caused them to multiply even more. Frustrated, Pharaoh devised a plot to have the midwives do his dirty work and he commanded the midwives to kill every baby boy at birth. If it's a girl, let her be. If it's a boy, kill him. But the midwives feared God and they didn't obey Pharaoh. And again, Israel continued to grow, continued to multiply. Finally, Pharaoh was so frustrated at the growth, the multiplication of the Hebrews, he issued an even more decree. He commanded that every Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the Nile, be thrown into the Nile. It was infanticide. One of the main themes of Exodus is this contrast between the power of Pharaoh and the power of God. And just as we saw last week in chapter 1, it is God, not Pharaoh, who has the final word. And as we unpack today the story of Moses, I have three points. They're not just three headings, they're actually three points for the note takers. The first point is this, that God calls us to respond to adversity in faith. God calls his people to respond to adversity in faith. The second is this, God displays his power through weakness. Okay? He doesn't fight power with power all the time. Often we see in the scriptures, he displays his power through weakness. And finally, 
that God works through, not despite our circumstances, okay? God works through our circumstances, not just despite them. Now, before we get into the text, I want to ask a very important question. What is faith? Okay. What is faith? Have you ever kind of paused to, to, to just think about that? What is it really? I mean, we, we talk about it, we sing about it, we know it's really important to the Christian life, this idea of faith, but what does it mean to have faith? What does it look like to express it? And as I crafted this first point that God calls us to respond to adversity in faith, I've crafted it in a way to try and help us understand what it means to have faith. You see, when I was first writing this sermon, the first draft of this point was, God calls us to respond to adversity with faith. Okay, different preposition, all the teachers, you guys know the difference there, right? So at first it was, with faith, to respond to adversity with faith. But as I kept kind of reflecting upon it, I realized that that can be a little misleading. As if when trouble comes our way, we, we pull out our faith. Make sense? If, if adversity comes, trouble comes, and we just reach into our pockets, reach into our hearts, and we say, here is my faith to combat that adversity. Kind of like putting out a fire with water, or curing a disease with medicine. But here's the thing, guys. Faith is, is not like a thing. It's not a, it's not a tool. That's not how faith works in our lives. It's not just something you pull out when you need it. Rather, faith is trust. It's belief in something. It's belief in someone. It's an inner disposition of the heart and mind, and your faith is expressed through words. Your faith is expressed through your affections. Your faith is expressed through your actions. Faith is not the agent. Faith is not the object. Rather, faith connects us to something. Faith is always placed in something. And that's why it's more helpful to say we respond in faith or we live by faith, right? Uh, not live with faith or we respond with faith faith. There's a, there's a nuance there, but it's very, very important. For example, uh, every time you take a trip on a plane, on an airplane, you place a certain amount of faith in the pilot and the plane to get you from point A to point B. Uh, the Boeing 737s have had their kind of public faith shaken after a series of, of actually, I don't want to smile about it, uh, mishaps. Uh, but right now, the public has very little faith in Boeing airplanes, right? Um, and so you could have a lot of faith, or you can actually have a little faith in a pilot or a plane. Uh, but if you have enough, you'll actually get on the plane. Okay, you'll get on the plane, and you'll, you'll hope for the best, right? Uh, but here's the thing. If the pilot is competent, if the plane is sound, then you will arrive safely. Okay, it's not based, the, the plane isn't going to land based on your faith. Okay, it's based on the object of your faith the competence of the pilot, the soundness of the plane. It's absurd to say that your faith flew you from L.A. to New York. No, you took a plane. The pilot flew you, but you believed. You had faith in the plane. You had faith in the pilot to get you there safely. That's how faith works. It's an inner disposition. It's an operation of the mind and the heart, and you place that in something. It's not just a tool. It's not just an object. Well, in the midst of, of tremendous adversity, in the midst of danger, Moses' parents, who were from the house of Levi, they lived in faith and not in fear. Think about this. They knew their child would be born a slave. 
If you were a parent, would you think twice about that? Husband and wife, you're like, wait, we already have Aaron. Moses was the third of three of children. There was already Aaron. There was Miriam. Should we go for a third knowing this child is going to be born a slave? Knowing that he would be oppressed? Knowing that his work would be bitter and hard under these ruthless Egyptians? Would you family plan differently? They have faith. They have faith. It didn't stop them. They knew that there was a 50-50 chance that their child would be born a boy and in danger of being thrown into the Nile, but they persevered. They lived and raised their family in faith. Hebrews 11 mentions the faith of Moses' parents. This is what the author of Hebrews says about the faith of Moses' parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of Pharaoh's command to throw every boy into the Nile. This brave couple had more faith in God than they had fear of Pharaoh. They disobeyed Pharaoh's command and they hid their child for three months by faith. And we're reminded today that faith is so important in raising a family. It takes faith to pray for a child. It takes faith to try and conceive. For many couples, many couples, that journey of trying to have a child, it takes months, even years. It can be filled with heartache and sorrow, but it takes faith to persevere. It takes faith to raise your children and send them out into the world, whether it's their first day of school or their first day of college. Parents, it takes faith to drop off your kids and for them no longer to be under your every, you know, moment of watching and care. Whether you're walking your baby from the maternity ward or walking your baby down that wedding aisle, we all need faith. Parents can be afraid of so many things that can happen to their children. And that's why so many parents are helicopter parents nowadays, right? Helicopter parents are just always watching them, never leaving them out of their sight, wanting to know exactly what's going on. I'm wondering what kind of parent I'm going to be. Am I going to install spyware on my kid's phone and want to know? I don't know, yeah. We're so afraid that something might happen to our beloved children, something bad, something terrible. But parents, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We're called to trust in God and and not only in ourselves. One pastor said this. He said, children do not flourish unless they are raised by faith and not by fear. Okay. You want to stunt the growth, the development of your children? Raise them in fear. Raise them to be utterly dependent on you and they will not flourish as young men and women. Let's return to the story. When Moses' mother could hide him no longer. She prepared a basket for him and she placed him in the reeds along the Nile River. He was just three months old. It was really odd and weird for me to prepare this sermon because my son right now, Seth, he's next door in the cry room. He's three months old. And so I was like looking at him, reading Moses, looking at him. I was like freaking out, right? And I can't imagine doing what Moses' mother did. 
Seth can't do a thing by himself. He can't feed himself. He can't change himself. He can't even burp. I gotta, I gotta burp him. It's like an exorcism every time. He can't even turn over by himself. He certainly can't protect himself. Three months is far too early to part with your child. But she had to let him go because that was the only way to save him. Now in the original Hebrew, the wording of this story is so beautiful. It's so powerful. You see, Moses' mother prepared a basket for him. She made it waterproof. She, she put tar and, and pitch around it to prepare it uh, to float on the Nile. And the word for the basket is teva, teva. And that word only shows up in one other place in the entire Bible. And it's found in Genesis 6 through 9. And that's the story of Noah and the ark. Teva means ark. Teva means ark. And so what Moses' mother did, she placed her son in a little ark, hoping and believing that God would spare her son just as God spared Noah and his family from the flood. She knew that the water could destroy her son. She knew that the Nile would be dangerous, but she had faith that God was able to save. God saved Noah in the ark. Perhaps he would save her son Moses through this little tiny ark. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to respond to adversity in faith. And this response, it's not passive. We must do all we can and with all our might. If you are here today and you think that trusting in the sovereignty of God means you don't have to do anything, you're terribly mistaken. If you think that, that Calvinism is let go and let God, that's not Calvinism. That's not Reformed theology. If you think that the Christian life is a passive life, brothers and sisters, that is not true. Moses' mother disobeyed Pharaoh in faith. She hid her son in faith. She prepared this little ark, waterproofed it, cared for it, placed her son in the safest part of the Nile that she could, all in faith, everything that she did for her son, for, her, for his security, for his life. She did it all in faith, faith that God was with her, faith that God would be with her son. This is how we are called to live as well, to study, to work, to pursue relationships, to raise our families, our children, all in faith, not to be paralyzed in fear, brothers and sisters, not to be paralyzed with fear and anxiety, not to be overwhelmed by the threat of failure and loss. Do you know how many millennials right now are overwhelmed with anxiety? You guys don't know what to do with your lives. What, 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 what major should I choose? And so you're paralyzed and you don't know what to do and so you end up in college for five, six, seven years. Brothers and sisters, make a decision, right? Don't let your anxiety and your fear paralyze you, right? Singles are wondering, is this person the one? I don't know. You don't make decisions. You don't give people opportunities. You don't, you don't, you don't take a chance on, on, on relationships that could be flourishing, that could be really fruitful and beneficial, and instead you stay at home and you just watch Game of Thrones and Netflix and Korean dramas and romantic comedies. Don't be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Right? Live free. Live believing that God is with you and for you.
Don't be overwhelmed by the threat of failure and the fear of loss. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like for you to live like that today? Right? To live lives filled with faith, to live lives that are free, to live lives that are active and dynamic and courageous because you believe in faith that God is with you, that God is not against you. As the story continues, we see that Moses' older sister, Miriam, she follows him as he's floating down the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter sees this little ark as she's bathing and she has her servants pick it up. She sees that inside is this beautiful Hebrew baby boy and he starts crying and she has pity on him. I could do an entire other sermon on common grace and on how Egypt is part of God's plan, not only for judgment, but also for redemption. This is this preview that the gospel is not just for the Jews only, that God's grace and sovereignty isn't just for the Hebrews, it's for the entire world. Then Miriam jumps in and she asks whether or not Pharaoh's daughter wants one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for her. Pharaoh's daughter agrees and she even decides to pay this wet nurse. I mean, mothers, imagine that. Imagine that, getting paid to nurse your own child. That's awesome, right? That would be awesome. Right? Um, but that's what happens. Miriam says, okay. I mean, Pharaoh's daughter says, go. Miriam gets Moses' mom to nurse him. What an amazing, what a beautiful reunion that must have been for Moses' mother. After the period of nursing was done, Moses was returned to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised as her son. My second point is this. God displays his power through weakness. God displays his power through weakness. Now, in the first two chapters, it's already clear. God triumphs over evil. He's mightier than Pharaoh, and he's frustrating all of Pharaoh's plans. The Hebrews keep growing despite slavery and oppression. The midwives fear God more than Pharaoh. Pharaoh meant for the Nile to be an instrument of death for the Hebrew boys, but here we see that God uses the Nile as an instrument of life to save Moses. Now, I hope this is received in the right way. I don't want to come off as a chauvinist. I'm not saying that women are weak, right? If anything, men are weak, right? Watch us get a cold, right? Catch a cold and we're like, oh, we're so weak, right? Uh, My wife is so much stronger than me, but I just want to here make an important cultural uh, observation. In the ancient culture, men were considered powerful while women were considered weaker. It was men who held positions of power and authority while women did not, right? But in the first chapters of Exodus, God uses five women to thwart the plans of Pharaoh. It's fascinating. Five women. There are no courageous men so far in Exodus, Okay, first two chapters, there are no courageous men in Exodus, only women. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, he's outmaneuvered by two midwives. Moses' mother and sister, right? They outmaneuver him. Even his own daughter doesn't obey her father, the king, right? She says, this is a Hebrew boy. She knows exactly who Moses is, what she is seeing, what she's looking at in this little basket, and she disobeys her own father, Right? In Pharaoh's household. How, how embarrassing is that? Right? It's quite the story of female empowerment in the midst of a culture that saw men as the dominant figures of strength. 
But this is how God displays his power over Pharaoh. He uses four ordinary Hebrew women who were considered weak. I mean, these are Hebrew slave women. They're considered powerless. God uses them to shame the strong, to shame Pharaoh. Maybe Pharaoh should have been more worried about the Hebrew women than the Hebrew men, right? He was like, man, we got to kill off the Hebrew boys so that these men don't cause me problems. He should have been thinking about the women, right? These vigorous Hebrew women. But such is the work of God, brothers and sisters. Such is the surprising work of God in this world and in our lives. He uses weak things to shame the strong, right? God is triumphant over evil, right? And he will do that in the most surprising, extraordinary ways. Finally, God works through and not despite our circumstances. Okay, he accomplishes his will through our circumstances, not despite them. In this story, we see that God's people, they're in the worst of circumstances. They're facing death. They're facing destruction. This is often the case, not only in the scriptures, but in our lives as well. Being Christian doesn't mean that we're suddenly immune from the trials and evils of this world. How awesome would that be? Right? The moment you give your life to Jesus, you're suddenly like cancer-proof, right? The moment you rededicate your life to Jesus, suddenly you're bankruptcy-proof or whatever. That, that would be awesome, but friends, that's not the case. Being Christian doesn't mean that we're immune from the trials and evils of this world. The mark of a Christian life, it's not defined by circumstances. It's not defined by what happens to us. Rather, the mark of a Christian life it's faith in God that perseveres, okay? Well, that's what sets us apart, brothers and sisters. We all, right, whether you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, whether you're a Christian, Muslim, atheist, whatever it might be, we all experience trials and sorrows and loss. What is the difference? Christians, we persevere by faith in God, by faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel through every trial. To be Christian means that we believe that God is truly sovereign and that he works out all things for his glory and our good. This was the testimony of Joseph. Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, to his brothers who sold him into slavery, he looks at them, he brings them into his court as he's risen to power in Egypt. And this is what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was sold into slavery. He experienced all sorts of humiliation. He spent seasons in jail. And he looks back and he says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God was sovereign. Not despite my slavery, not despite my imprisonment, not despite your evil and hatred towards me, no. God was sovereign through it. God was working through it that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The Apostle Paul, he writes in a similar vein, Romans 8.28, such a famous verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things God is working out for our good. Brothers and sisters, church, these are not just naive Christian quotes. They're not just platitudes reserved for Hallmark cards. They're not just statements by people who have never experienced suffering, okay? They are 
They are truths. They are declarations, conclusions from God's people who have suffered in this world. But they found their treasure in Christ. They found their hope, their joy, their answers to their suffering in the sovereign will of God. These are biblical truths that should serve as anchors for our souls in the midst of our storms. Too often, too often we think that God works against our trials, right? To bring some good out of it, okay? Um, uh, have you heard that, you know, the phrase, you know, like, oh, I, I, I like you despite, you know, your awkwardness or your personality. Like, husbands, never say that to your wives. Say, oh, I love you despite the fact that you're messy and don't take good care of the finance. Don't, don't, don't ever say that, right? It, it won't work. Right? That's not romantic, right? Uh, we know what we mean. None of us are perfect, and so we still love each other despite our sins, right? Uh, and sometimes we think that like, that's, that's, that's what God is doing with our circumstances. All these things are going wrong, but despite the ruin, despite our mistakes, God's going God's to somehow fix it, right? God's going to make it better. We think that, man, it's bad luck. Man, it's bad decisions that got us into this mess, but, but we believe God will get us out, right? That's kind of our approach, as if God is our divine, like, triple A, like, you know, triple A help. But the reality is that God is sovereign, and he doesn't work so much despite our circumstances as he's working in them. He's working through them. He's working with them. Do you believe that God is sovereign in your life? that he has control over every moment, every step, right? every minute, that God is sovereign. We see this so clearly in the story of Moses. Once again, God hasn't spoken in Exodus. Okay? There's no courageous men so far in Exodus chapter one and chapter two, and God has no lines. He hasn't said anything yet. But his invisible hand, it's so evident. His fingerprints are all over these circumstances and situations. God, God could have struck Pharaoh down. He could have stopped the command and the decrees of Pharaoh, but he didn't. Why? He placed Moses in the same Nile that Pharaoh meant for harm. He brought Moses to Pharaoh's doorstep to be raised in Pharaoh's own house. Why? All so that he could defeat Pharaoh at the heart of his own strength. All, that, all so that he could put his glory, his power, his sovereignty on display before Egypt and all of the nations. Moses will be raised in Pharaoh's house. He will acquire all the necessary skills, knowledge, and abilities to serve, not Pharaoh, but to serve God as a great redeemer for his people. Brothers and sisters, the same is true with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved not despite the death of Jesus, but precisely in the death of our Lord. Okay? The death of Jesus, it wasn't an accident. right? It wasn't just merely the will of Pontius Pilate and the will of the Jewish leaders. God was sovereign. He ordained that his son would go to the cross. Jesus was born to die. And it's by his wounds we are healed. One commentator writes, Christ triumphs over death because he first endured through death, right? Friends, the cross was no accident. Yes, it was horrific. Yes, it was terrible, but it had a divine purpose. 
God was working in and through the cross. The cross has the most glorious purpose we could ever know, for through the cross, repentant sinners, we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have become adopted sons and daughters of God. God doesn't work despite our circumstances. No, he works in and through every single one. And if this is true, let me offer one closing application. Question, what circumstances are you going through right now in your life that are causing you to question God? You're saying, God, why? Why is this happening? And if you're sovereign, why are you allowing this to happen? You may be confused about his will. You may be frustrated with his timing. You may even be here and you're angry with God. You're angry with his work in your life. My prayer for you is not simply that he would change your circumstances. I don't want his work in your life to be that shallow, that superficial. My prayer is that you would endure through that storm with faith, that you would continue to trust in Jesus as the object of your faith. I'm not telling you to take pleasure in the pain. That's, that's, that's masochism, right? Christians, we're not masochists. We don't have to smile as we're suffering, okay? That's not the word today, but I'm calling you to endure in faith. I'm exhorting you to believe that your God is sovereign and he has a purpose for your circumstance right now. Would you believe in that? Would you seek his sovereign will? Would you trust in his sovereign grace in, in your life? Would you believe that as hard and as difficult and as dark as things might feel in your life right now, that he is still good, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And God in his sovereignty, God in his grace, God in his goodness and in his wisdom, he has led you to this specific circumstance and as he has led you, he will surely lead you through it. He's led you to it. He will lead you through it, brothers and sisters. Would you consider that that's what God might be doing in your life? Would you look to him? Would you believe in him? Would you trust in him? And by doing so, that's glorifying him. I mean, that's, that's, that's perhaps the most beautiful and significant way we can glorify God, brothers and sisters. Not in our flourishing, not in our success, right? After you do something well, you get a raise, you, you, you get into your program and you say, hashtag glory to God, right? We can bring the most glory to God, the most fame to God. We can make the most of the beauty and significance of Christ when in the midst of our trials, when in the midst of our heartache, when in the midst of our fear, we can say, Christ is my anchor. Jesus is enough. God is my strength and my refuge. He is my portion. I will not be shaken. He's with me. So I am more than a conqueror. That's how you bring glory to God, church. That's how you bring glory to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great story of redemption and even the infant story of Moses. We thank you for the example of faith demonstrated by his parents 
who out of faith disobeyed a king's decree, but they believed in you. They feared you. They put their hope in you that you are a God who is mighty to save. Lord, I pray that the parents in this room, that the families of our church would demonstrate that kind of faith. That the families here would not be overwhelmed with fear and anxiety as they look upon their precious and beloved children that they would not cling to them and grip them as their own, but they would know that they are yours. They are your beloved and you, you care for them. You cherish them more than we ever could. And so help us to raise our children in faith, to raise, to raise our children believing that you are their true father in heaven, that you are the God who will secure for them eternal joy, eternal goodness, and eternal life. Help us to live and parent in such a way that we would declare to them and to this world that Jesus is our only hope. Father, would you build us up? Would you give us faith? Would you give us endurance? Would you give us encouragement as we go through our own trials and circumstances? Help us to see your divine purpose in them. Help us to see and experience how you are making us more like Jesus. How we are being united in the death and resurrection of Jesus as we endure.